0: Let's sit. Let's learn. Let's
1: evolve. Let's talk. Today is Let's Talk Business with your host,
2: Jai Lawton.
0: Hello and welcome to Let's Talk Business. My name is Jai Lawton, a Bidgera man from Central West Queensland and your host for the weekly Let's Talk Business series. Before we start, I would like to acknowledge the traditional custodians of the lands we broadcast here in the West End of Brisbane, and all across the country, wherever you are listening. I would like to acknowledge the unceded sovereignty of all First Nations people across the many nations in this continent, and acknowledge all Elders, past and present. Today, we are speaking to Aunty Pat Torres, a cultural storyteller, author, artist, illustrator, business owner, and traditional custodian of the beautiful country in and around Broome. Aunty Pat is also the Chief Executive Officer, owner and founder of a number of businesses and a veteran of the native food industry. She has spoken to people across the country and across the globe, including recently as a keynote speaker at the Social Enterprise World Forum, and we are lucky enough to have Aunty Pat join us on today's program. Hello and welcome to the program, Aunty Pat. Yeah,
1: Ngaji Mingan,
0: how are you, Jane? Yeah, deadly, and it's great to hear from you. And um, yeah, can we start with you, your mob and your country aunt?
1: Yeah, so my family were privileged to actually be connected to seven Aboriginal groups in the West Kimberley here. So, starting with Jugan, going down south towards Bidjiganga, we have Yaru and the Gurudjuri people. So that's um, on my grandmother's mother's side, and on my grandfather, so my mother's father's side, we go north into Mumbal, Jabba Jabba. Uh, Nulnul and Bard. Yeah. So it's all along what's called the Dampier Peninsula.
2: Yep.
1: So yeah. in the West Kimberley region, yeah.
2: Beautiful North country.
1: North and south of Brune. Yeah, really beautiful country. I remember as a child inviting everyone to come up here and, you know, be part of our beautiful scenery and everything. And I'm wondering whether I did the wrong thing because now we've got too many people here.
0: <laughs> <laughs> oh. And it is, it is beautiful country there in, you know, in the Kimberley and, um, and your, your cultural stories and, and connection to that beautiful country, can you just share some of that, that cultural story and, and identity there, Aunt?
1: Yes, so um, I created, you know, what's called the Nant Tour, which is the woman's word. So there is a, a big story that goes throughout Australia Um, with the Seven Sisters. So Broome is one of the sites where the Seven Sisters came down from the sky onto our land and they came to teach people um, specifically the women, you know, the Seven Sisters taught the women culture and language and song and dance and information about medicine and foods. So this, of course, goes back thousands and thousands and thousands of years ago. But the story has been you retained through the handing down of our ancestral story throughout. Now, the, the other story that's around here is the old mother and the two daughters. So they are creator beings as well. And they were amazing giant people. They weren't like small humans like we are. They were quite giant in size. And they also brought with them ceremony and song and dance and ways of being, how to be a good person in this world with two people, environment and, the you know, the lands and seas around us. So my family practices those teachings. Mm.
2: Mm.
0: Yeah, no, and it, it is, it's important. I remember when we were at Atlas Springs there only last year and, and you know, you, you talked about, you know, the importance of you know cultural identity and and incorporating that that cultural identity into life business and all things so how, how do you take that cultural identity and, and that cultural story and embed it into your into your business practice
1: how i do that is you know we are governed by a four kinship system so i'm a baniga woman my straight one is a burungu my mother's garimba and my father's barajari so four kinship system um, governs how we behave with each other. So I extend that into my business practice by involving family, extended family, into whatever activities I do. So if I'm collecting the Kakadu plum, we call it gubbing over here. It's one of the language words we use for that green plum. Um, so I make sure that I pull in family members and extended family members and other kin who married into our group. So that's very much like, you know, almost like what's called a circular economy mm-hmm. where you involve your local people and your best contacts. You sell to each other, you buy from each other, that sort of thing. And I, I try and do that in my small way mm-hmm. in my business. Yeah, and then, you know, I've got a responsibility to my children, my grandchildren, they have a responsibility to me, so if anything um, needs to get done, we do it according to, you know, our cultural ways. If my daughters are married to, um, you know, non Aboriginal men, they still get treated as if they're my son-in-law, so I don't speak with them.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: I talk to them via my daughters or my son. So that's a cultural way because that's a taboo relationship, you see. Mm. Um, and so, even though we've got work to do, I can't talk directly to them. So I utilise my son or my daughters in order to get the message across, or my brother. Yep. So that's one. That's one way, and the other way, of course, is you know when we get out on country, we tell the stories, we tell the language words for each plant. Um, that we're harvesting, and as we're coming across other things, we point those out and we teach them the language of the land. So if I'm in Broome, we're teaching them jugan If I'm going north, I'm teaching them Ngumbo, Jabba, Jabba, or Nyulnyul, or Bard, depending on how far up the coast we're going, into the different language group areas. Mm. So that's, you know, that's one way. And then the other really strong thing, I think, is this
2: respect
1: about protocols. So if I am going into um, another language group, I always make sure that I get a permission. For example, recently I've been asked to do um, welcome to country ceremonies and a smoking for people who come over to Broom and get married. Mm. So I go and involve my elders into that. So even though I'm an elder woman myself, and I can do it because I've been taught to do so by my mother. I still involve my older aunties as a sign of respect and to share the money that comes in, you know. So mm. I share my resources out to my family and my community on a regular basis. So yeah. I operate like a social enterprise, even though I'm supposed to be, you know, a business.
0: Yeah, there's, a, there's a lot to learn in the way in which you, you do business, aunt, um, from, you know, not only within our own culture, but actually uh, across the country, you know, um, from these big corporations and all other things. There's, there's a lot to be learned, I think, in, in that way. And, and before we dive into your business journey, um, you know, you, you worked across the education sector with a number of notable people. And I remember hearing this story last year when we met, but can you tell us about that journey before business?
1: Yeah, so um I was around during the 1980s and it was a very forward-thinking time. We had people like Gough Whitlam around who was really on about self-determination and Aboriginal people having a say and, and getting involved and getting trained. So I was in my 20s, so I had, you know, close contact with people like Bob Morgan, Linda Burney... Um, Quite a a few different people, Errol West, some of these people's names, I'm calling out, are um, deceased now, unfortunately, but um, I want to acknowledge them. Mm. Um, Stephen Stephen Albert from my country here, you know, Michael Mansell, um, lots of people all around, Paul Hughes. So these are people who became, you know, the leaders during the 80s, 90s and into the 2000s. And I was a younger person. And so that was part of what was called the National Aboriginal Education Committee. And we were advisors to Senator Susan Ryan in those days, which meant that, um, you know, Aboriginal people got a voice during that period of time. Mm. To And that's how we brought in the Aboriginal education policy. I was one of the few. who used to sit around with hundreds of others and we would develop what is now called the Aboriginal education policy within state government. So we did workshopping with our communities all around Australia for something like four to five years. And I remember it was a time of lots of tears because every time people got up to speak, they talked about how they've been oppressed, how their families have been treated through the legal system, through the government system, through stolen generation times, um, you know, deaths in custody, all those really sad stories came out before people could share. And so we cried ourselves for five years, you know, Mm. uh, listening to everybody's story. And that made everyone realize that we weren't living by ourselves um, with our own little problems, that it was a nationwide problem. Mm. Everyone had experienced something similar, some kind of state government or federal laws that punished us just because we were Aboriginal
2: Mm.
1: and how we got treated by the general community and how we were excluded from things. Like, um, just give you one law in Western Australia here, if you were what they were called half caste you were not allowed to own land, have a business, you had to get permission to marry someone who was not of your group. So as an example, my mum had to get permission to marry a white man, for example. Now those sort of laws don't uh, um, apply to everybody, they only apply to Aboriginal people.
2: Mm.
1: I remember as a child walking down the street and being stopped by public health and jabbed in the arm with the immunization needle so there was no no seeking parents' approval. And, in fact, that constitutes an assault mm-hmm. to a child. So that's the kind of treatment, you know, that our family came to those meetings with. <laughs> there was so many tears cried mm-hmm. in order to get the trauma out. Trauma had to come out in order for us to go forward. So... It's- I was highly um, politicized. Mm. I came back into my community knowing a whole breadth of information and knowing this national experience. So I came back with this fire in my belly to do something, you know? Mm. It,
0: mm. It's disgusting to think how how recent it is. You know, this is the stuff we're talking about is in your lifetime and um, and hearing all yeah. of those different stories from across the country um, would have been...
1: Yeah, would, mm. yeah. I mean, there was incredible levels of this stuff. Like um, my um, cousin's grandfather was a child in the Fitzroy area when the police and a whole bunch of pastoralists went and maffeted his family group mm. and so this old fella couldn't ever be around police because he remembers that very vividly in his mind as a four-year-old child
0: mm. and these so, are st- stories that the country really needs to hear aren't they they you know they need to hear these truths
1: This is the, this is the truth telling that needs to happen because mm. when you don't have truth um Everyone thinks that you know we're carrying on for nothing, no reason. Mm. They see us as disruptors and activists and um, people who've got a chip on our shoulder. Um, but you know the amazing thing about Aboriginal people is that even though we tell our stories, we don't go and blame every white person that lives in Australia. Mm. <laughs> I mean, whereas we get blamed, you know, Aboriginal people get blamed we're the, we're the drunks, we're the hopeless, we are the, um, you know, everything negative you can think. I remember as a child being taught the sort of stuff and I thought, nah, that's not true, we're not like that. And you know, I was very, as a child I was very critical mm. and so I grew up um, resisting that kind of bad narrative that was around about us. And people used to say, you know, what are you? You know, they'd look at me, where are you? Where do you come from? And I said, look, I'm an Aboriginal and I'm proud to be an Aboriginal. And they were shocked that I would say that I was proud mm. to be an Aboriginal. Mm. They thought I should be ashamed to be an Aboriginal person. So, you know, words like First Nations and all that mm. have come out now because we have gone through also, you know, looking for positive words that, really describe
2: who we are and what we are,
0: you know? Yeah, and speaking of that positivity, despite you know, um, the treatment and all other things, uh, something that, you know, always comes to mind and always comes to mind with yourself particularly is that that humour, you know, I I remember Auntie Jackie Huggins saying that humour is our liberation and has been our liberation and the, you know, the laughs that we've had together, you know, (laughs) chuckling at restaurants at Top Notes and, and all that sort of stuff and Uncle... You know, Nev Paulina, him and I, you know, from over over that way have also had a lot of laughs. Can you share with us the importance of that, you know, that really distinct type of humour that blackfellas have?
1: Yeah, I think um, you, if you have something like humour, of course, it helps to release. It's like a catharsis where you're letting go the tension and the negativity that's within you. So, I mean, white doctors found out recently that if you ha, 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 laugh, 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 it actually helps to heal. And we know that because it's a back.
2: Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh.
1: And um, so, yeah, you know, there's lots of things Aboriginal people can teach um, other people because we came from a really highly developed spiritual group of people mm. where we respected each other, respected the land, respected the spiritual um, entities within our country. And our... Our systems were always inclusive. We never excluded people. Mm. Those who did really, really bad things were excluded for only short periods of time. Mm. They were then allowed back into the community two years later after they'd had their punishment, you know? Mm. And they were then reclassified, like if it was a wrong marriage, they were reclassified so they could fit in to the society um, some of it meant changing their skin group name because they might have married wrong and generally because it's the woman who determines on our side of the country it's the woman who determines the skin group of the children. It was the man who lost what his skin group was to his family Mm. and he had to fit it onto what was a straight um, skin for the woman because we had a very strongly matrilineal Society mm. in my part of the region here. That's why you know the seven sisters and the two sisters and the old mother are very significant stories for us, because it's coming from that matrilineal side of the world.
0: Yeah, and and something again that the the country and, other, and others need to learn from in terms of that you know that matriarchal and and the power of um, you know and the knowledge of uh, you know of women and such such a dominated pale, stale, male environment that we operate in today.
1: Yeah, a lot of the violence that happened in the world when you go back thousands of years came about when the matrilineal order was suppressed. Mm. And in our country here, we actually have a really ancient story of an old lady who arrives to the Corroboree ground late and she comes across by accident what the men were doing. And in the process, she was killed. And then from that moment on, the women's um, role was suppressed and the men's role became really important. And that happened all around the world, not only to us Indigenous people in our country here, but it happened all around the world where the feminine was squashed and the masculine came up. Um, lots of wars, lots of... Um, invasions into other people's country and things like that. So, you know, all the stuff that happened with the British invasion into Australia was all coming from that patrilineal power that was being exerted all over the world. Mm.
2: Yeah. So
1: Australia was one of the few, you know, the last continents to get affected. America and the Asian countries and Africa was affected and India long before we were, you know?
0: Mm. yeah. And and you very clearly, uh, and I le- always learn a lot um, speaking to your Aunt. So I appreciate your time. And I and and always, you know, you, we mentioned at the outset, there started out in education, and arguably always been an educator. And in terms of the, the businesses that you that you're running at the moment, what can you share a little bit about about those type of businesses that you you're operating in? Yeah,
1: so um, I started out with bush foods and bush remedies because that was my passion, and as more and more non-Aboriginal people learned how important our medicines and stuff were. Um, They had more money and more investment opportunities and maybe more family money than what I could access. So they, those businesses went ahead and so you get this rise in black cladding that happens all around Australia where they utilise our knowledge, they utilise our families and they utilise the bush foods and they can go you know, they can become richer than what we can in a much quicker way because they know know the secret English. They know how to get investors. They know they've got people in their networks that can help them. Um, So that's one of the things I think Indigenous people struggle with sometimes is not having access to those sort of things. But the bush food and um, bush medicine, it helped me um, keep my children in the bush, when things were going on in town that was not so good and we we did land management and under what they used to be calling Community Development Employment Programme, CDP. Mm. CDP, it's like working for the dole that exists today. Yeah. But it allowed us to be on country and there was a little bit of money put aside so you can actually have a little bit of infrastructure. So we were able to build houses, um, toilets and showers, you know, buy a machine to cut the grass and have a vehicle and fill it up with fuel, those sort of things, you know, um, through employment program that we were doing. Then it went into training and employment and education. And so, you know, my family through went through all of those different government policies, trying to retain culture but also survive in this westernised world mm. where you've got to go out and get a job and work, you know, um, So because I was doing a lot of um, free workshops for schools and people would just turn up to me and expect me to teach them on the spot, I thought, I I must have done that for about 20 years and I thought, I can't keep doing this for nothing. Mm. (laughs) 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 I need to pay my bills. (laughs) Put food on the table, yeah. (laughs) Put food on the table, pay my rent, you know. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. (laughs) fix up an air conditioner if it breaks. And (laughs) so I created the tours then. (laughs) And um, out of the tours, in between the tours and the bush medicine, I was also doing Welcome to Country. So, you know, the government went through this thing of reconciliation, walking across bridges to show they support us and recognising us um, as first peoples and all that sort of stuff. So I got a bit of business by doing Welcome to Country and smoking ceremonies so mm. um, that still continues um, in this part of the world EBC, you know, the prescribed body corporates that have come out of the native title legislation
2: yep.
1: um, encourages that people you know, respect the place and respect the peoples and so I get a little bit of business through that And and then you have people looking for something other than what they have in their lives. And they come to our country looking for that wisdom and that sense of belonging. So, you know, that's where I get invitations to do smoking ceremonies for weddings and welcoming them into country and people who have flown in here from out of somewhere else who want to get blessed and feel secure. They come to me for a bit of healing. So, you know, that's another aspect of my business And in all of that, there's always a teaching component from me. I'm always sharing my knowledge about our cultural connection to Mm -hmm. the land and the place and the people and the animals, you know. And I talk about some really deep concepts because I want them to realise that, you know, First Nation people in Australia, we're not the missing link as we've been treated for so long. (coughs) you know, between ape and man. Mm. Um, I remember that kind of narrative during my years as a uni student. Um, so I bring out our intricate knowledge to show them, to showcase, you know, mm. what our ways of thinking and being, our philosophies, you know, what we are on about as, as humans, as people, because our human rights are being um, trod upon daily, you know, in Australia.
2: Mm.
1: We're still witnessing our children at 10 years old being chucked into jail. Mm. Um, So that kind of punitive um, systems in Australia generally get put on to Indigenous people more than anyone else. So there's a real need to do this truth commission, the telling of the truth. And those people who work with ours should be doing cross-cultural training so they can see what their culture is and how they're affecting everybody else.
2: Mm.
1: You know, I, I was a strong advocate of the education system, but um, since my children have been born and grown up, I've shown very clearly that the education system can be one of the most oppressive systems around. Yeah. And so, yeah, and I've done my best to work within the system but there's still that really strong attitude that exists out there because they have this sense of privilege and a lot of it's built on lies and myths that have been perpetrated for the last two two 250 years, you know. Mm. The myth of discovery, you know, that's one big myth. The myth of terra nullius, no people belonging here, you know that sort of stuff, the myth of settlement. Settlement didn't happen here. It was an invasion. Mm. And so, you know, people need to understand the effects of that.
0: So yeah, the curriculum needs control. absolutely overhauling, doesn't it? And I, and I think that's the great thing about yeah. your business. You, you know, you, you're teaching this day in, day out um, on on country, um, on your country. Yeah, and well... That's
1: right. This year, I'm getting more school groups coming because they want that cultural knowledge and they want the exposure to some of the truth and done in a way that, you know, like I'm not pointing a finger at people as such and blaming them for being non-Aboriginal. I'm, you know, sharing to them as part of facts and explaining, you know, how we've been affected by it. Mm. And despite that, we still stand up strong. We search for our good and positive things about our society and our people and we make good works, you know. I mean, some of our best artists and designers and dancers and theatre people and filmmakers and cooks, you know, they're all Indigenous people. Mm. We've got such an amazing amount of talented people in our community but the mainstream media often depicts us in a negative way.
0: Yeah, it's certainly something we we need to change. And when you talk about those different, you know, arts, you know, you yourself are an artist, an author, and an illustrator. Can you can you tell us about that that side of things?
1: Yeah, well, you know, um, during the nineteen eighties, I actually dealt with domestic violence in my personal life, and my way of dealing with that while my children slept was actually to write children's books. So I my first books were a book using yaru language and mm-hmm. then the other one was using um nil nil language because that was part of my family connection mm-hmm. and there was i remember as a child going to school and learning about mary had a little lamb whose fleece was white as snow and jack be nimble jack be quick you know all those kind of children's rhymes that you learn in school mm-hmm. and there was nothing relevant to my circumstances um, in in our schools it was all based on middle class white fellow culture mm. so and, and from overseas so I created children's um, poetry utilizing the animals of our region so that kids could have an alternative they could see themselves and their knowledge you know in the school in which they're forced to go um, instead of just learning how to be. Um, Middle-class white fellas, mm-hmm. um, and then, and then still not being allowed to belong. You know,
2: mm. I
1: remember that very clearly as a child growing up. So my my story was about a healing journey for me. So I I created the illustrations. I did the poetry work. I went and saw my elders and got the language text and put it together. And at that time, uh, Magabala books were being created locally,
2: mm. and
1: their first book was on uh, bush foods and bush tucker, so, um, the plants of the region, um, with, um, Merrily Lands, you know, so that was amazing. And then I went there and I said, Look, I've got these two books I've been working on. Are you guys interested? And that, that became the second and third publication for the, um, for the Magabala books
2: oh, yeah. publishing
1: house. And, and that came out of the, you know, the Nookanbar days when people were, um, protesting against the mining on Nockenbar Station. And so the Aboriginal community in the region had decided this was enough, you know. They weren't getting permission from the traditional owners to go and do that kind of work. They just arrived and started doing stuff. Mm. So that was a whole of Kimberley um, reaction to being treated in that way by industry and government. So um, I was lucky so that Muggabala Books was being established because I was able to just walk off the street into their little office and say, are you interested in this? And they said, yeah. I had a little bit of an argument and a bit of a fight with the editor at the time because he didn't want to put Aboriginal language in there. And I said, no way, we're going to put this with the language. <laughs> <laughs> We're not only, you know, English-speaking people. And mm. so, and he said, why would you want to create a book that's only 25 speakers? And I said, well, that's exactly the reason because after this book is created, there'll be more than 25 speakers, you know. Mm. <laughs> and so that was the other thing, you know, my family got involved in getting the Yaru language um, developed and established in the Broome region in the different schools, and... Um, And then my book became a resource, you know, for that. Yep. And now it's functioning as part of the curriculum in the Broome town, you know. Um, At that time, that was the language of the people who were here living in Broome on Dugan country. And they were the speakers. So um, we didn't have too many Dugan speakers around. So we went with the Yaru language instead. And And so that was the of a big journey, you know.
0: Yeah, and that publishing group's huge now, eh?
1: The publishing group has gone from success to success Mm. and, you know, done really well. So that was another one of those. The Mugabala Books was created because they needed the Aboriginal word to be out there because our um, history was not being shared um, truthfully and justly. We mm. were always being demonised or trivialised.
0: So yeah, and there's there's a connection between it's all of your work. One. I think you know there's the the education piece that's just a constant across all the different um, all the different different things that you do. And you you've spoken about yeah, yeah you've spoken about you know the exploitation of our knowledge and greed and and black cladding and, you know, you've seen firsthand in the native food industries of our knowledge exploited. Like, what do you see as the biggest challenges that we're facing right now as a, as a sector across Indigenous businesses? What do we need to do to overcome some of these challenges?
1: I think basically um, we work collaboratively together. We do have millionaires that exist out there and perhaps they can put back some of that into the communities to help businesses go forward. There are some really good programs and projects that are beginning to um, emerge um, through agribusinesses that are encouraging Aboriginal people to be part of it, to learn how to um, do business and agribusiness. Mm. And, And I guess we need, you know, what I found, I went and did the Farmers to Founders course, which means that I was put right in the middle of... A industry-specific training program Mm -hmm. with mentors and and that was a fantastic learning for me because I realised that there was this other world out there which was supporting each other and it was a bit difficult for us to break through that curtain and get in there and be part of it because um, we didn't know it existed. Mm. So... Lots of training, you know, since COVID, a lot of training has happened um, online and there's some amazing opportunities being created by our own businesses, First Nation businesses. And um, some of us are collaborating in a really good way with other non-Aboriginal businesses. So I think we're in a, a fantastic period of time at the moment. So when I speak and I'm speaking from a historical perspective in terms of how I saw um, the way things were in the world, but this last, I'd say, between 5 to 10, maybe 15 years has been an upward climb to better things for Indigenous people throughout Australia and globally. So we need to um, assist each other Grow the businesses up together with each other by that thing called a circular economy. Mm. I think we need to get educated so that we don't keep getting um, pulled into unequal relationships with people. We are quite vulnerable um, because we're newcomers on the block mm. and we don't quite know how, you know, business works. And we go in with good faith, good intentions, and then we get taken for a ride. Um, so we need to get a bit more politicised. We need to get a bit more savvy, and we need to work smart. And places like the Murrah, you know, Indigenous Business um, Group with Dylan Odua, are one of the best ways forward because we get to learn all of it. We get to learn the Indigenous ways of doing stuff and we get to learn how Western business operates. So we then can pick a path and go forward with something that suits us specifically.
0: Yeah. So I think,
1: you know, it's very our ways of doing things are very humanistic and we care about other people and that's what we need to do. We need to care about each other and go forward building with each other in a collaboration
0: yeah and just just looking at how far we've come and i want to just wrap up by you know asking a question that i ask all of my guests around you know transporting you in time to 50 years from now so it's 2073 what does indigenous business look like
1: wow well 50 years time i'll be truly gone off this planet but i'll be looking out onto the planet from wherever i am Mm. um hoping that things will be a lot better you know I think as I said if we go forward cooperatively if we support each other um, and have financial systems that assist things like the first Australians capital you know that's working really well for some of the individuals I've been speaking to Mm. supply nation works well in the government but we need something in the you know like the private sector area as well um, where we have indigenous um, chambers of commerce Indigenous trade um, organisations and a whole bunch of training and education programs that make us function really well within the business whilst keeping our Indigenous ways of doing doing stuff. So in 50 years' time, there should be a whole lot more millionaires out there and a whole lot more humanistic structures where... Sh- where we get a, a good chance of being recognised as first people of this country, um, getting the respect and acknowledgement through, having the protocols in place so that we can do business without worrying about racism within the sector mm. and investment being done by our peoples and, and others. You know, part of the issue is the systems in place at the moment are outdated Uh, Are not geared towards how we want to progress and develop our business. So we're constantly being forced to fit into someone else's model. Whereas um, we need to keep a good um, memory and um, practices in place to ensure that our ways of working, doing, living, thriving, is retained so that we don't just become a copy of what exists now. What exists now is not working.
0: No, and that's that's some powerful advice. We don't want to become, you know, brown people caught up in a, in, a, in a in the current same system and um, and. Yeah, I just want to thank you so much for your time, Aunty Pat, and um, I always enjoy having a yarn with you. Time, time just stand still, and um, and we just we just go, and it's been an absolute pleasure um, to have you on the program today, and I just want to thank you for your time.
2: Yeah,
1: thank you so much, too, for thinking of me and, and involving me in such an amazing program. I wish you success, and I know that things will do well for you.
0: Thanks, Aunty Pat. Take
1: care. Thank you. Yes. Yeah. God, yeah. so, Bye-bye.
0: Bye. And you've been listening to Let's Talk. If you want to hear more from today or catch another episode of Let's Talk, head to AAA.org.au. Thank you for your company. No more whispering in our minds. Let's Talk, Monday to Friday at 9am no on AAA now. Murray Country, the National Indigenous Radio Service and iHeartRadio. You can catch up on AAA.org.au. Proudly supported by the Community Broadcast Foundation.